Hello, people of the way. We're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. And if you have your Bible, open to chapter 24. Chapter 24, we left off last week. Remember how I said that the um, uh, much of the chapters, from uh, several chapters from here on out, they read like a legal briefing? Uh, and that's what we see here. It's almost like a court setting. Uh, Paul is, he's in the Praetorium in Caesarea. And he starts to, he's able now to make his case before Governor Felix. Remember last week he was before um, uh, the commander, um, Claudius Lysias. That's from chapter 23, verse 26. Claudius Lysias was the commander's name. And so, you know, he sent him over to uh, the governor, Felix. So it was like a uh, quasi-military matter with the commander. And the commander was like, okay, you know, this is more political. So I'm going to send him to the governor. And that's Paul. Beautiful, beautiful brother Paul. And right now he's waiting for his accusers to arrive. Because where we left off last week, uh, uh, Governor Felix said in verse 35 of the previous chapter, says, I will, hear when, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So here he is, Paul's in Caesarea. And that's where we kick off here in chapter 24. So in verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, remember, this is the same high priest who commanded Paul to be punched in the mouth. That was from in uh, chapter 23, verse 2, says the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. You know, and, you know, it's so beautiful when you see, and I'm not that Paul was punched in the mouth, but like, you know, you see him self-control. I mean, have you ever been punched before? I don't know about you, but you get punched, and like when I get punched, or I haven't been punched in a while, but you get punched, and it's like you feel everything. It's just like, wow, I'm so angry. I have to retaliate, retaliate. I have to avenge. You know, now it's you know uh, uh, my turn, and it's so crazy because you see the, your carnal nature. And then you read the Bible and you see these beautiful, beautiful people, men and women, how the Holy Spirit gives them self-control and they're able to exercise these gifts of the Holy Spirit, the self-control. And it's like, wow, Lord, if they can do it, Lord, you can do it with me too. It's like a comfort, a source of comfort for, you know, you might not be punched in the mouth, but, you know, for when you're punched or when people make fun of you or when, you know, people turn their back on you. Or maybe even when they want to chop off your head. And you say like, whoa, that's that's pretty drastic. Well, I know. But in the last days, that's what it says what's going to happen to the church. To Christians, the saints. Saints of the Most High are going to be beheaded. Because they refuse to take the mark of the beast. I don't care what any pastor tells you. A lot of pastors nowadays, in accordance with Reformed theology, I find that the majority of them are from the Reformed theology. And they say, oh, it's okay to take the mark of the beast and you'll still be saved. No way. That is direct contradiction of Holy Scripture. Direct contradiction of Holy Scripture. Do, do not take the mark of the beast. Never. You know, your life can depend on it. And, you know, in this life and the life to come. Second death. And so powerful here, you see Paul, he's like, he's standing firm in the Lord. And as much as you think like, wow, you know, he's hardcore, he's making a stand for the Lord. There's that side of it. But when you, I wonder what Paul's heart is like if he's just so full of comfort, even in the face of adversity. Remember last week when we studied and you see the red letters in verse 11 of chapter 23? 
Look at all the religious establishment. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, how they dress, how they behave when you read, how they act in Matthew 23. How they behave and from the onset, from the outside looking, you know, if you, if you look at the, just the, the, the people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, like, wow, surely these guys are holy. Surely the Lord is with them. But then you read Acts 23 and you know who the Lord was with? Paul. Paul. And so these same guys come up, you know, a little different. We're going to see that here. The same guys come up. They go from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Took them five days to travel. And they have a new travel companion. Look what it says here. After five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. Tertullus. So who is this Tertullus? You know, I kind of see him as like a prosecuting attorney. A prosecuting attorney. You know, he's an orator. So he's very skilled in speaking. And when I read this, especially when I read these arguments that he makes, I, I seem like a prosecuting attorney. Have you ever seen like, you know, pit bull attorneys? It's very impressive to watch. You know, sometimes you see attorneys and all they do is just read a script. and It's kind of boring. You fall asleep. But then when you see the pit bulls, the expensive lawyers, it's like, whoa, these guys are hardcore. No joke. You're like, man, if I ever get in a pinch, I want that guy. And that's how these Jews, they what they did, the high priest, the, the, the elders... They get this guy, Tertullus, who's an orator. They think, like, wow, this is frightening. How, how in the world is Paul going to come up against this Tertullus guy who's a very skilled orator, hired help of the uh, Ananias and, and, and the elders? Pretty scary, right? Well, let's pause here really quick, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. This is a promise of our Lord. You see it exemplified in Peter, when we are in our earlier chapters in, in Acts, and we're going to see it right here with Paul. Let's go to Matthew 10. And in Matthew 10, a little side note, you know, so I, when, whenever I teach, I have to have tea, a hot cup of tea with me because my throat, it's pretty bad. So, you know, when your prayers, you know, if you can uh, say a little prayer, my throat, it hurts every time I teach. So that's why if you hear pauses and like little gulps and little slurps, that's what's happening. So a little uh, disclaimer there. Uh, in, um, in Matthew 10 verse 16 look what the lord says here straight up red letters he says behold i send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and that's so wild you know you think you know how, how satan is described you know he's a serpent that serpent of old and like you know our lord is telling us hey you know be wise like a serpent be wise like a serpent and harmless as doves. You know, like you think of like the serpent who's the father of lies. But for us, we have to exercise wisdom, biblical wisdom, sound counsel from Holy Scripture. But with no harm. No ill intent upon another. You know, just the opposite. To consider them as better than yourself. To be innocent as doves. Wise and innocent and you know, it says here in verse 17, our Lord teaches us, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry, 
about how about how or what you should speak for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak for it is not you who speak but the spirit of your father who speaks in you see the capital s there it's not you who speak it's the spirit of your father who speaks in you i mean have you ever been in a like in a situation where you're in a speaking engagement and you have to give a speech for on whatever topic and it's like, you know, you might be nervous. And the Lord says, hey, don't worry about it. When they deliver you up, when they deliver you up, don't worry about it. You know, it's a form of persecution. And the Lord's saying, don't worry about it. Because it's not going to be you who speaks. It's going to be the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. In uh, verse 21, now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Some hardcore, hardcore divisions. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. This is a promise of the Lord that we see exemplified in Brother Peter in the earlier chapters of Acts. We see it in Paul. We see it in Stephen. And you say, like, wow, how could, how could the Lord tell Stephen not to worry and then all of a sudden he's killed? That kind of sounds backwards. But it's not backwards. You know why? Something happens when you die more and more and more to self. Something happens inside. I can't explain it. It's supernatural. You kind of see death as beautiful. You're kind of anxious for your last breath you know why because in accordance to the promises of our lord as he says beautiful in, 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 beautiful in the eyes of the lord is the death of his saints it's like a passageway it's appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment that's what the bible teaches we're all gonna die you know a hundred percent of all people will die one hundred percent not 99 not 97 not 87 100 percent of all living people will die. And it's like a, we all have to drink of this cup. Death. When it comes to you. When it comes to me. These are things that we can look forward to. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it's so beautiful when you start to think about eternity. You know, I had a guy tell me, an elder, he says, oh, you know, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That's the dumbest counsel I've ever heard in my life. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Of course, be heavenly minded. And you know what? If you're a believer and you're standing strong for the Lord, you are no earthly good. This world will hate you. It's a promise of our Lord that this world will hate you. And then this elder, oh, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And I start reading my Bible. It's like, man, this guy's crazy. So let's go back to Acts now, in Acts 24. This Tertullius, or uh, Tertullus, you think like, wow, this orator's so skilled. I don't know how much they paid him, but wow, you know. And then look what happens here in verse 1. Tertullus, these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So they come into town. They're from Jerusalem. They come into town. The priests, the, the high priests, the elders, they, they're equipped with Tertullus. And they present their evidence to the governor. 
And, you know, it's like they're prosecuting attorney. You know, you see like prosecuting attorneys, they come with all their briefcase. Attorney one, attorney two, attorney three, they got their briefcases. They open it up and put all these things of papers. The legal assistants come in with even more, you know, they wheel in the containers full of all these documents. It's like, whoa, what kind of, what kind of dirt do they have? What are they going to present? That's what they're doing here, except we're going to see it's all a hoax. It's all a hoax. It's all a fabrication. It's all for show. And verse 2 says, And when he, when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, So you hear this prosecution, Tertullus? He starts buttering the judge up. You know, Governor Felix, he starts buttering him up a little bit. And you see it here in verse 2. He says, See, this is him, quote, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. You know, it's by your providence is how it translates. It's very interesting. It's like a forked tongue, straight up. It's almost laughable. You know, remember, these are people that want Paul dead. Our beautiful, beautiful brother in the Lord. And they want him dead. And that's what they, like in verse 12 of the previous chapter, that's what the, the conspiracy. And verse 2 says, now there were more, or verse 13 of Acts 23. Acts 23, 13 says, now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. What was the conspiracy? Well, look at the end of verse 12. They would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. That was what they wanted to do. Kill Paul. And, you know, even, you know, that was just, you know, like in verse 15 as well at the end. They say, I make an inquiry concerning Paul. And then when he's walking down the street, we're going to kill him. That was the other conspiracy. So first conspiracy is like, we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. And then the second conspiracy was, okay, you know, when he's walking down the street, we're going to kill him. Make inquiry. We're going to kill him. In verse 21, remember uh, the nephew of Paul. He goes to the commander and tells him, he reveals this to him. More than 40 of them wait for Paul. Every, it's all a fabrication. It's all a hoax. So, you know, put yourself in uh, uh, Governor Felix's shoes for a moment. And you have two factions here. All these group of guys, uh, Ananias, the high priest. And Ananias is a well-known guy. The high priest he brings his elders. Wow, surely these are holy men. And then, you know, you look to your right. Okay, that's your that's the uh, uh, prosecution. You look to your left. The defendant, one guy. One guy, Paul. Beautiful Paul. And notice here. You know, it's like, you know, remember, keep in mind as they're speaking, as, as Tertullus is speaking this way, like in verse 2, he says, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to the nation by your foresight, by your providence is how that translates. And keep in mind that these are men who want Paul dead. In verse 3, we accept it always and in all places. Wow, he's speaking about Governor Felix's providence? This Tertullus? Hired by Ananias, the high priest, and the elders. And their, you know, accolades unto Felix and his foresight and his providence. They're lauding him. What about the Lord? What about the Lord? 
You know, all in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is witness to everything. Oh, Governor Felix, your, your providence, you know, prosperity is being brought to this nation by your providence. What about the Lord? And you start to understand like, wow, these guys are blind and deaf. When you see the behavior of these so-called religious leaders, you see their behavior, you see the works of their hands, the steps of their feet, the outpouring of their mouth. What comes out of their mouth, which is the outpouring of the heart, as the, our Lord teaches us. Then you understand why our Lord Jesus Christ said what he said to the religious leaders in Matthew 23. A hardcore indictment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you. W-O-E. That's a bad woe. Woe to you. That's like a way of saying, you know, watch yourselves. Watch out. Woe to you. This is hardcore. These are the accusations, false accusations against Paul. And so look what happens here in verse 4 or in verse 3. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. You know, and we're in our study on Wednesdays on Levitic, in Leviticus. And as we continue to study through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and study deeply about the things of the law, you're going to see the Lord's perspective on His providence, His blessings upon Israel, and why He blesses Israel. And you know, there's blessings of obedience and curses for disobedience. You know, we're going to understand these things. And when we gain these understandings, you read these passages and you're going to be like, wow, I understand why. It's like, wow, these guys are blind. It's almost like offensive. Like, uh, how could you be so blind? How could you be so deaf? But you know what? That's what happens when the Lord is forgotten. Don't forget that Egypt honored God. Egypt. You say, well, I thought God judged Egypt. He did. I thought he destroyed the Egyptian army. He did. So then why do you say that God, uh, that the Egyptians honored the Lord? Well, from the account that I'm referencing in, you know, in Exodus, the early chapters of Exodus, you know, you see the plagues and then you see judgment. Hit the rewind button and go to Genesis. Now, what do you have? You have, you know, Pharaoh has this nightmare about a time period where there's going to be famine. And nobody can interpret his dream save one. A certain individual by the name of Joseph. Who became Zafnath Panea. Changed his name. Zafnath Panea. And then when he was revealed that, wow, you know what? These, these guys are his brothers, sons of Jacob. Then you see Egypt, they honor the Lord like, wow. Remember, Pharaoh said, this guy is second in command. He's my right-hand man. He gives the command. He's, he's, he's the guy. And then what happens? You know, you hit play from that moment. And in the course of time, the Lord becomes forgotten. Then you see what the Lord does. 
how he has to make himself known. How he makes himself known again so that Israel can believe. So that Egypt can believe. So that the Midianites can believe. You say, what do you mean the Midianites? Remember Jethro? The same thing happens here. Wow, what's up with these elders? What's up with the high priest? What's up with their tulis? They're blind and deaf. Because the Lord has become, become forgotten. What about the church today? Can the Lord become forgotten? You betcha. As surely as the Lord lives, He can become forgotten. In the church, inside the church. Remember, the last day's church, three factions of the last day's church. It's either false, apostate, or uh, uh, refined. Those are the three factions of the last day's church. And are we in the last days? I can make a strong case that we're in the last days. Strong case. And if you're a believer, you don't... You can see, we, you know, you hear the, our Lord teaches us about the signs of the times. We're, we're straight up in times of the signs. If you're a non-believer, and maybe you're freaked out, you know, prophetically speaking, like, well, what in the world is happening? The world is like, you know, it, it's, it's going crazy. Well, be of good cheer. If you're a non-believer right now, be of good cheer. You know why? Because Jesus Christ says, I tell you these things before they happen, so that when they happen, you might believe. You know he was talking about? You. You know why? Because he loves you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to be one with you. Will you let him? Will you let him? You need not be afraid. You know, it's like, It's so beautiful when you start to understand these things. It's like, oh my goodness, wow, Lord, I have sinned. And praise be to the Lord, not that you have sinned, but that you have the conviction of the Holy Spirit to to acknowledge your sin. And what happens when you acknowledge your sin? You repent. You believe in Jesus Christ and you repent. And then you accept Him as your Lord and Savior. And then it's so beautiful. It's like an adventure. Certain passages, we studied this already, but it translates it like an adventure with the Lord. And that's what He wants with you. Ushering you into paradise. In His timing, of course. But if you're a non-believer listening to these words right now, repent. God loves you. That's what God wants me to tell you. He loves you. And so, look what happens here. In verse 4, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, you know, not, not to belabor the point, you know, Governor Felix, I beg you to hear by your courtesy, by your graciousness is how it translates a few words from us. You know, you hear this and you know, if we were like a jury and we're just listening to this, like, oh, brother, who is this guy? You know, it's like he's going over the top a little too much, this Tertullus guy, but he's a great orator. Supposedly a great orator. In verse 5, For we have found this man. Remember, Paul's all by himself. There's no representation. He doesn't have his attorney with him. For we have found this man a plague. Paul, a plague. Beautiful brother Paul. And the religious leaders, the so-called religious leaders, I mean, they were the religious leaders. 
but they were blind and deaf. And what does Jesus Christ say? If the blind follow the blind, then both fall into a ditch. You know, if you're a believer and you know you have a pastor that's teaching craziness, you have a pastor that's teaching things that are not sound doctrine, you might have to get a new pastor. Because if he's blind and you follow him, you know what's going to happen? He's going to fall into a ditch and then you're going to fall into a ditch as well. You know what I say? Don't fall into a ditch. Look at these religious leaders. We have found this man, Paul. He's a plague. He's a disease. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You know, when Paul is operating, you know, know, like he's an operator, you know, but when Paul is ministering, And when he is speaking and going from town to town of his own volition, nobody has a gun to his head. We've studied some deep passages already in the book of Acts about the exploits of Paul. What he's done going from town to town, what he's suffered. And you could look, you know, is it really his own volition? Is he's willing but he's commanded of the Lord. He's operating in complete and total obedience to Jesus Christ. He's just a messenger. The God that these religious leaders claim to represent is the God that's giving Paul his commands. The commander of Paul. Wow, how... How the mighty have fallen. Speaking about the high priest Ananias, the elders, and Tertullus. And they call Paul beautiful brother Paul. He's a plague, he's a disease, a creator, dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. In verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple. This is all fake. All fake. It's all a fabrication. In chapter 21, turn to chapter 21 really quick. And this is what they base the case on, among other things. In verse 28, Acts 21, 28, men of Israel, help! Exclamation point. This is the man, speaking about Paul, who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. They're in the temple in Jerusalem. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That's the claim. In verse 29, look what happens here. It says, For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. It was, they supposed, that was their supposition. That was their assumption that they made. Oh, yeah, we... We see that Paul's with this Ephesian. That Ephesian should never be in the temple. He was Greek. You know, in synagogues and in the temple, they had certain areas for the Gentiles. But the Jews would go in one area, and they're saying, Paul brought this Gentile into this area that's for the Jews. And in accordance with the law, he broke the law. That was the claim. But that's all it is, a claim. Look at their conduct. Just Not just in this passage, but remember last week and the week before? Look at the conduct. 
They're saying Paul has profaned the temple. You know who's really profaning the temple? Them. You know who really profaned the temple in Jerusalem? Ananias, the high priest, these elders, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, in accordance to the law. But above that, they profane the Son of the Most High. They're blind and deaf. And so here in verse 6, says, going back to chapter 24, verse 6, they're speaking about Paul. This is the accusation. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. No, they wanted to kill Paul. So yeah, we we're going to you know, place a judgment upon Paul. That's kind of, you know, a little whitewashing there because their form of judgment was to kill Paul. They wanted to kill Paul. They conspired together, and it was all straight-up lies. A conspiracy. In verse 7, but the commander, you know, Tertullus is speaking here, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. You know, they're telling this Tertullus guy, this great orator, so to speak, Talking to Governor Felix. Oh yeah, we were going to give give Paul justice in accordance with our law as Jews. And you know, we were just trying to deliver justice. We were trying to serve justice. But Commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things which we accuse him. All these things which we accuse him. Don't forget that this commander that they're speaking about, Commander Lysias, he sent a letter to Felix. And that's what we studied last week at the end. If you look at chapter 23, verse 29. And this was written in the letter that uh, uh, the commander wrote to Governor Felix in verse 29. It says, I found out that he was speaking about Paul. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Even before the commander, remember last week when we studied, you see it's like another legal setting, except the judge, and instead of being the governor, it's the military commander. And Paul presented his case, and the religious leaders present their case. It's like, okay, what's, what's the, number one, what's the charge? And what's your form of judgment? What's your determination in the execution of this, of your law? And instead of saying, well, we're going to kill him, you know, instead of is saying it flat out, well, we're going to judge him and it's going to end up, he's going to end up being dead. No, what do they do? They make this conspiracy. And what's the conspiracy? You know, the first one is like, okay, we're not going to eat until Paul is dead, until they had killed Paul. And then the other conspiracy was, you know, send an inquiry that, you know, we're just going to ask for Paul so we can make inquiries about him. You know, we're just going to ask him some questions. And as he's walking from point A to point B to come see us, we're going to have a group of guys right there to meet him so they can kill him. Read it. I mean, we studied it last week. Chapter 23, verse 15. What a farce. That's all a hoax. In verse 9, in chapter 24 now. And all and the Jews also assented, maintaining that things these things were so. They concurred with Tertullus. 
Chunzi says to join in the attack. Yeah, this guy, Paul, he's bad. He's a disease. He's a plague. All he does is cause this division. A creator of dissension among all Jews. And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's all a hoax. In verse 10, you have the group prosecuting attorney and, you know, these cohorts. Then you have one guy, Paul. He speaks. Now, keep in mind what we looked at in Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, how the Lord says, look, you know, don't worry. When they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. The Holy Spirit is just going to take over. You know what I think is cool? You know, there's some passages that say hour, you know, and I just, I, I look at it, as, you know, there's some passage where it says the hour, just a certain time, time frame is, you know, a, a, a time frame with no definitive, like, seconds and minutes tied to it. But when I read this, I wonder, like, when he says, don't worry about how or what you should speak for, it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. I wonder if Paul, just sitting there or standing there, I don't know what the setting was like, maybe they were standing I wonder if Paul, as he's listening, the Holy Spirit is ministering to him, giving him comfort. It's like, don't worry about it, Paul. Don't worry about it, Paul. This guy says this, this is what you're going to say. It's like a heavenly download, you know? Not to cheapen it by any, by any means. But it's, I, I read it, it's like, wow, it's like a heavenly download. You know, what do I say, Lord? And it's so cool what happens here in verse 10 of chapter 24 of the book of Acts. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, this is now, quote, Paul, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. In the Greek, this is ap apologiomai. That's where we get the word apologetics. To give an account, defense, and testify you know what's so beautiful about your own personal testimony? Your own personal account with Jesus Christ? It's yours. It's yours and yours alone. No one can take it from you. Remember the blind guy? The Lord healed him. He was, he was blind and then now he can see. And then, you know, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they say, okay, you know, we want to talk to you. And he said, look, you know, the Lord healed me. Jesus Christ healed me. And then they brought them before the council. They brought, and then they brought his parents. They're like, you're blind because you had sin in your life. You're a sinner. And the parents, they were freaked out. Like, oh my goodness, what are they going to do to my son? Now we're implicated because he's our son. And we, you know, in our study in the law, you know, it's like, whoa, parents are implicated. No need to study the law. You know, don't, you know, we're under grace, you know, we're under this age of grace. And if you're a Christian, you know, don't, you know, you have responsibility to raise your kids. So in one sense, you're, you know, you, you, you are not implicated in one sense because your kids have to make their own decisions. But then at the same time, you are implicated because you're responsible for training them up in the way they should go. Don't forget, Jesus Christ teaches parents about a millstone. He presents an alternative to parents. It's hardcore stuff. I know it's hardcore. I'm not a parent, but if I were, I'd be freaked out. It's so cool how the Lord teaches us all these things. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And I don't mean fear of the Lord like, wow, you know, he's going to burn me up. But the fear of the Lord like, wow, you know, to have respect for him, his, his holiness. Sometimes I see people, it's like, man, they have, they have more respect towards their bosses than, you know, than they do for the Lord. It, it shouldn't be that way. And so look what happens here. Oh, speak about the blind guy. You know, so uh, the Pharisees, you know, they're like, you're, you know, you have sin in your life. And it's, the blind guy couldn't, he's not a well-educated guy. Except he has his own personal testimony. I mean, he's not going to get into like, you know, hardcore studies in the law. And, you know, be like, well, in the book of Joel says this. And, you know, Ezekiel says this. And Genesis says this. And Leviticus says this. He's like, look, man. And he didn't say it like that. But, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Look, man, all I know is that I was blind. And now I see his own personal testimony. And that's what you have with Jesus Christ. Something that nobody can take from you. Because it's personal. It's yours and for you alone. Somebody can come to you and say, oh yeah, you know, this is like this because of X, Y, Z. You're like this because of 1, 2, 3. You're like this because of, you know, A, B, C. It's like, look man, all I know is that I was blind and now I see. And you know what? I love Jesus Christ. I'm so in love with him. And then you grow. It's like a little plant that starts to come out of the soil. You ever see this bright, bright green? I think it's cute, you know, when you see little plants. And you see these little leaves come out of the soil. It's like bright green. And then they just stretch up and reach toward the sun. And that's how you can be. You grow in Christ. And you stretch up and reach toward the sun. You press forward. Not S-U-N-S-O-N. And you press forward. Putting aside the elementary things of Christ. And move on to perfection. And you grow. And then as you grow and learn and understand, all of a sudden, you'll be able to have these theological battles, so to speak. Not for the sake of like, you know, argument. But for winning souls. Satan knows the scriptures. Don't forget that. Satan knows the Bible. That's how he tried to trick Jesus Christ. That's how he tries to trick Christians. He uses scripture. A lot of Christians get in trouble because not only do they not know scripture, but they don't test the spirits to see whether, you know, whatever spirit it is, to see whether it's of the Lord or not. Very important in these last days. And so look what happens here. In verse, uh, in verse 10, Paul says, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So Paul says by himself, no legal counsel. Same in the Lord. Him in the Lord. In verse 11, But you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So remember our study in chapter 21? 12 days later, Paul is right here in Caesarea before Governor Felix. In verse 12, And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. He's telling them, look, these accusations are false. This Tertullus guy, I don't know who he is. Yeah, he speaks well, but it's false. It's fake news. That's all it is. 
in verse 13, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. It's all a ruse. It's all a fabricated conspiracy by so-called holy men. It's just shameful. I mean, I'm not advocating the law when I say this. But when you read Leviticus and you read Numbers and you read Deuteronomy, these priests have a responsibility to atone, to, to, to bring people to the Lord and make them right before the Lord. And by the sacrifices that are brought and offered, that sacrifice, then they have an, a duty. The priests have a duty to make atonement on behalf of the Lord, to make atonement for God's people. Remember when Jesus Christ goes into the temple and what does he see? He's mad. He is mad. He says, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Because it was like a business center. They turned temple worship into business. What do you see today in churches? Churches become a business. A tax haven. A tax fraud. Crazy days that we're living in. You know, in accordance with the law, people would bring their animal. A poor guy, say a poor guy. Can't afford an ox, can't afford a lamb, so he'd bring a turtle dove to make atonement for sin in his home. He'd walk into the temple, they'd, you know, examine the bird and say, well, you know, this bird's wings are kind of messed up, but what if, what if the bird's wing was messed up? What if it was? Except that was the best bird that this poor guy had. Or what if a guy brought him his lamb and he's not a rich guy. He can barely afford lamb. It was like, wow, this is... And there was a little blemish on the lamb. But it was, you know, maybe like a little discoloring. But among all the flock, it was the very, very, very best lamb that this guy had. There's nothing wrong. In accordance to the law, there's nothing wrong at all with what is being presented to the Lord because it is the best of what He has. And then the priest examines it. Well, you know, there's this little discolorization over here. We can't accept this. This won't atone for your family. This won't atone for the sin in your home. And so let's put this to side, to the side. And here, let me give you this one. Oh, by the way, it's a hundred bucks. Now, these people, they want... The, the fact that a person is bringing a turtle dove or a lamb or whatever... An, in accordance with the law, not whatever animal, but in accordance with the law. The fact that it, it is being brought to the priest for the function of what the law entails says a lot about the person presenting the sacrifice. Because they desire atonement for their hearts. They desire atonement for their homes. They desire atonement for the occupants in the home. Who is not going to pay the hundred bucks? Or, you know, a poor guy with a bird. Well, you know, the beak is chipped a little bit, so we can't accept this. But what if it was the best one? What if they just had two? What if it was only one? And here, here's my bird. 
you see, and what poor, you tell the poor guy that we can't accept this bird, but here, you know, we give us 20 bucks and, you know, we'll give you another bird, a qualified bird. What, what, what person, what, what person would not pay the 20 bucks when he wants atonement for his home? Who would not pay 20 bucks? You know what $20 is to a poor person? It's a lot of money to a poor person. And so they scrounge for 20 bucks. Wow, you know, this is my rent money. This money was going to, you know, feed my family for the week. But more than the food that I want to feed my family, I want to present this. I need atonement in my home. So here's my 20 bucks. Here's my 20 bucks. And when Jesus Christ walks in the temple, he sees what's happening. And he was mad. What in the world is happening here? They thought he lost his mind. They thought he was crazy. He takes the tables and throws them around and just turns them over. People with their money back. The money changers is what they called them. And he throws everything. You know, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And surely they did. He himself speaking as the lamb. But his time had not yet come. You see how hardcore this is? It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. You think about the sacrifice of our Lord. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, take this cup from me. You see his anguish. Like to, to hear Jesus Christ say, Father, take this cup from me. Like, Father, you know, this is the cup that you're giving me. And you know what? Take it away from me. But then, not my will, Lord. Your will be done. And in complete and total obedience to his Father, he continues. What kind of love is this? That's the love that God has for you. How much he loves you to take your sin. You believe in him. You repent. He takes the penalty of your sin away from you. It's no longer for you. He placed it on his only begotten son. So that in the law, you know, you would bring your lamb for sacrifice, for atonement. But in accordance with grace, God, your Father in heaven, says, no, here's my lamb. Use this. Take this. And then you have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your heart. And what happens? Just like Passover, the plague passes over those homes. That's how much God loves you. That's how much he wants oneness with you. And so look what happens here. All these accusations, it's false. Everything that the, these, uh, the priest, the so-called priest, the so-called high priest. In accordance with the law, he has a job to do, but he's abdicated his job. He's abdicated his responsibility. And at this particular moment in time, I'm not advocating the law. I'm just giving an example. I'm at, 
if they really were under the law, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. They would have been the ones to say, whoa, Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember the, the Pharisees? They were like, we're of Moses. We're hardcore. Jesus is like, you're not of Moses. How can you be of Moses? Moses wrote about me. But because you won't believe Moses, how can you believe my words? And so Paul, continuing his defense before the governor, in verse 14, I have to say this is one of my favorite verses. I'm a little biased, but this is one of my favorite verses. Among many, but in verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. You see? The way. That's what they first called the church. You know, back in the day? Like, you know, they weren't called Christians. They just called them people of the way. Paul says, but this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect. A sect here, it trans- it's a heresy. It's what they call a heretical party. You know, you have all these political parties. You know, you have the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, Green Party, and the Labor Party. If you, I don't know if you're in Europe, but if you're listening in Europe, you have the Labor Party. If you're listening in some, like Israel, you have Labor Party. You know, you have Likud. You know, you have all these different factions. Well, what about the heretical party? You know, it doesn't, doesn't have a nice ring to it. But that's what they're saying. These are the, the sect. This is their party, the, the heretical party. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Abiding in Christ, the fulfillment of the law. You remember Paul's love that he has for the Jews? And look what they want to do to him. They want to straight up kill him. But remember his love for the Jews? We studied it a couple passages ago. But let's look at Romans chapter 9. Really quick. Romans chapter 9. And in Romans 9, verse 1. This is Paul. We wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And it was already, you know, in our, in, in our in, where, where we're at in Acts, in Acts uh, 24. It's already written. The book of Romans is already written. The letter has already been sent. In verse 9, or in verse 1 of chapter 9, Romans, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, anathema from Christ, banned in Christ. That's how it translates. To be accursed from Christ. Beautiful brother Paul is saying, I wish that I could be accursed from Christ. It's like, whoa. Brother Paul, accursed from Christ? Anathema? Banned from Christ? Why, Paul? He says this, for my brethren, my countrymen. This is the uh, kin as relational according to the flesh. Paul's heart for the Jewish people, his countrymen. Lord, if they can come to you, if they can acknowledge you as the Messiah, if they can acknowledge you as Lord and Savior, then Lord, I'll make a trade-off. Me for them. You take them, Lord, and you disown me. You know how hardcore that is? 
And right, I mean, Paul, before the council, before the, 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 the Jewish leaders, before Tertullus, before Felix, he says, according to this way, which they call us the sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. We're back in Acts 24 now. You see his love for the Jews. Um, my guilt, if I'm guilty of anything, it's for loving you, Ananias. It's for loving you, Tertullus. It's for loving you, uh, uh, elders. And you guys want me dead. He didn't say that, but look at his actions. Look at how he pleaded in the synagogues in our previous studies through the chapters. How it was his custom to go to the synagogue first. Not for the sake of argument, but because he loved his countrymen. How he wanted them to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. I mean, can you say that of another person? Can you say, Lord... Take this person and reject me. Lord, take person A, not me. Lord, take person B, not me. That's some hardcore stuff. You see the love that Paul has. We can look at all these passages, even in his letters, like, wow, Paul was so obedient. Yes, he was obedient. He was obedient. But then you see something else behind it. Just as we studied before, he's a dead man walking. Something was different about Paul. Remember how he told the, uh, 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 in chapter 21, in chapter 21, they were saying, Paul, you know, other Christians, you know, apostles, evangelists, prophets, prophetesses, disciples, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. And in Acts 21, verse 13, he says, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Whoa. Something different about beautiful brother Paul. He doesn't mind death. Kind of a little romanticization of death. Not for the sake of, you know, death, but for the sake of life with Jesus Christ in paradise. And then at the same time, there's also something different about in that regard, but you look at his motivation, love. Yes, he's obedient to the Lord, which is beautiful. But look at what drives him. Of course, obedience, but then at the same time, wow, his passion, his love for the Jewish people. Lord, take them, not me. Reject me, Lord, and take them. How he longed for that. Who can you say that you wish you could be accursed from Christ? Who can you say that you wish you could be anathema, banned from Jesus Christ? If a group of people or one person could just come to Jesus Christ. That's some hardcore love. People always wonder, you know, I wonder why Paul wrote so many books. I mean, you know, he wasn't even one of the, uh, you know, 
12, which became 11. I mean, he wasn't even there. Like, what? I mean, forgive me for saying it like this, but what gives Paul the right to write so many books? Number one, the Lord gave it to him. But then number two, you see, there's something different about this guy. He's not like the average bear. You see his love. And you see his emptiness. Emptiness of self. You see his humility. When did he ever, when did he ever tell anybody that he was a Roman? I wonder how many people knew that he was a Roman, an actual Roman citizen. Yes, he grew up in the area of Rome. He was, you know, of Tarsus in the area of Cilicia. Yeah, they knew he was a Jew. But I wonder how many people knew that he was a Roman citizen. He didn't rest his laurels on that. When did he use, when did he announce that he was a Roman citizen? You see, there's something different about this guy. No disrespect to Paul, you know, for calling him this guy. But you read these passages, then you understand when you see the nature of this man, his heart, his passion, his love, not for himself, his love of the Lord and his love for other people, his denial of self. How he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Then you understand. I get it why there's so many letters that Paul wrote that are captured in the canon of Scripture. And people say, well, a bunch of guys put that together, the Bible. You don't know there's this book over here that's not. No. You remember, I think I said this before, but you remember when Jesus Christ was standing before Pilate and Pilate says, look, I can keep, I can kill you or I can keep you alive. And Jesus Christ says, you have no power over me, Pilate. He didn't say it like that. But he said, you have no power over me except that which is given to you by my Father. So when people say like, oh yeah, you know, this Bible that we have today, a bunch of guys put it together. You know, you, 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 we don't really have the truth. of So much is lost. So much has been rewritten. But the Word became flesh. No man has power over Jesus Christ. Except that which is given to him by the Father. Just like with Pilate. So what does that mean for us today when we have the canon of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation? That we have the Bible that our Father who art in heaven wants us to have. Because nobody has power over Jesus Christ. The Bible that you read, Genesis to Revelation, is the Bible that our Father wants us to have. And the word became flesh. Paul, he's, he's a different animal. Remember all the, even Dr. Luke was there. Like, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. And the whole time the Holy Spirit is saying, you know, you're going to go to Jerusalem. And what happened when Paul was in Jerusalem? The Lord was right there with him. And so look what happens here. In verse 14, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call us, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. 
I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, which they also admit is how it translates. Remember the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees with Paul? How the, the, how the Pharisees sided with Paul? Because they believe in the resurrection. They themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. The Sadducees, they say there is no resurrection. The Pharisees, they say there is a resurrection. So we see in our study last week, you see how the Lord gave them some favor with the Pharisees. You know, a little comment I have to say about this is, you know, don't forget that the Bible teaches the living will by no means precede those who are asleep. That's from 1 Thessalonians. In this particular passage right here in Acts 24, 1 Thessalonians has already been written. 2 Thessalonians has already been written, signed, sealed, delivered, and sent to the churches in Thessalonica. It says a lot about how quick, how quickly Christians can turn without a steady diet of sound doctrine. Because a couple chapters ago, Paul was just with the Thess- just in Thessalonica. And so he has to write a letter to them. Not just one letter, but two letters. A couple chapters ago, Paul was just in Thessalonica. And how quickly they were seduced. How quickly they were seduced. That's just a matter of years. What about 2,000 years? What about you and me today? Sound doctrine is of the utmost importance. Remember our study in chapter 20 when Paul had an exhortation to the elders in Ephesus or the Ephesian elders, but the meeting was in Miletus. And he says in in Acts 20 verse 29, he says, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, he's speaking to the elders. Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. He's saying not only are the wolves going to come inside, but he's saying some of you elders, some of you shepherds are going to turn into wolves. Rising up and speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And then what do we see? We see Paul start writing letters to the churches. To the church in Galatia, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Thessalonica. Another letter to the church in Corinth. Another letter to the church in Thessalonica. A letter to the church in Ephesus. How quickly these elders, some of them, turned into wolves. How quickly these shepherds, former shepherds, turned into wolves. Wild, wild days that we're living in. This did, we're 2,000 some years later, give or take a couple years. But we're 2,000 years later. Sounds doctrine. It's very important. In the last days, you know, people won't adhere to sound doctrine. Being tossed to and fro by all kinds of various doctrines. And so look what happens. You're going back to Acts 24 now. In verse 16. 
This being so, I myself, he's Paul speaking, I myself always strive, translates as train. I always strive or always train to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Whoa, that's a hardcore verse in verse 16. He strives. Paul, this is Brother Paul. The majority of the New Testament written by Paul. I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God. Now, if it was just toward God, period, I would be like, okay, I get it. But without offense toward God and men. Without offense, to be void of offense, to be faultless toward God and men. In Romans 12, verse 18, Paul writes this. He says, if, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's what Paul writes to the church in Rome. And this letter has already been sent in our study in Acts 24. Signed, sealed, delivered, letter sent to the church in Rome. And he tells the church in Rome, as much, if possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's Romans 12, 18. And he's saying in verse 16 of chapter 24 of the book of Acts, He's saying, I strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I tell you the truth, real freedom, real freedom. You know, I'm a constitutionalist too. I love the constitution of the U.S. But real freedom is a clear conscience before God and men. That's real freedom. I meant speaking about a clear conscience. How many Christians? The world is the world. That's, I don't want to say I don't care about the world, but for sake of argument, I don't care about the world. I care about the world in the sense that I want you to come to Christ. But if you're a non-believer, you know, you're in the world and you're hearing these words, come to Christ. God loves you. He wants me to tell you that. But if you're a Christian listening to my message, real freedom is a clear conscience before God and men. That's real freedom. How many Christians can have a clear conscience before Jesus Christ? Today. Maybe it's you. You know, you got your dirty magazines. Your dirty movies. You got a little crack on the side. Doing your pot, your marijuana stuff on the side. How many Christians can have a clear conscience before the Lord? And how many do have a clear conscience before the Lord? And I don't I don't say this in like a you know in a retribution kind of sense. I say this in a like, hey, you know what, let's you know you're going to the left a little too much. You're going to the right a little too much. Let's get right in the middle of this narrow path together, you and me. I know we got a little bit of wiggle room on the left. I know we got a little bit of wiggle room on the right. But you know where it's better to be? Right in the middle of this narrow path. Come on. We'll be here together. How many Christians have a clear conscience before the Lord? Where you read the Bible and your conviction that, you know, it's getting less and less and less. You know, keep a little journal. I don't, 
I don't want to lord over anybody's faith. I don't want to compel you to do anything, but I'll make a strong urging. Write a journal. And you might want to keep it to yourself. <laughs> but write a journal about every time you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit when you're reading the Bible. And, you know, start writing a little checklist. Wow, you know what? I feel conviction about this. Conviction about this. You know, conviction about this. Write a little journal. Or every time you hear a sermon, wow, you feel conviction about this. Conviction about this. And keep a little journal. And, you know, read the journal like maybe once a month. Once a quarter. Once a year. You know, at your... You know, whenever, but in, not like every day, but like maybe once a month, a quarter, half a year, you know, every, every six months and read it. And you know, it's going to be so cool. Use it as a barometer for growth. You're going to start crossing things off the list. Wow, Lord, I don't cuss anymore. Scratch it off the list. Wow, Lord, I don't do crack anymore. Scratch it off the list. Wow, Lord, I burned all my dirty magazines. Scratch it off the list. Wow, Lord, I don't do these crazy things on my computer. Scratch it on the list. Scratch it off the list. Lord, I don't do marijuana. Scratch it off the list. And you're going to rejoice. And your conviction that you're going to have in the Holy Spirit, you're still going to have conviction. When you stop having conviction of the Holy Spirit, you'll be dead. You're still going to be convicted, but it's going to be like minor infractions. You know, it, it's like, and when I say minor infractions, it's like, I mean, sometimes I've talked to brothers in the Lord and I say like, you know, I had to repent about this. And they're like, what? That's no big deal. Well, you know what? To me, it's a big deal. Or for me, for this temple, it's a big deal. Your temple, that's one thing. But for me, for this temple, it's a big deal. And I had to repent of these things. And it's so cool because it's like, wow, you can look at past infractions. Like, whoa, Lord, look at what you've done in my life. And you can rejoice all the more and fall deeper in love with the Lord. I mean, you don't have to have a journal, but, you know, it, it's kind of cool when you do. That's what's so beautiful about a clear conscience. But yeah, I'm going to raise the ante a little bit. Remember how I said, you know, in verse 16, when he says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God. If there was a period there, it's like, okay, I get it. But there's no period. It's not yet. He says, and men. Whoa. <laughs> and men? Lord, what are you talking about? I wonder how many people, you know, if you get a knock on your door. A knock on your door of your house, your apartment, wherever you live. You get a knock on the door. You look through the people, and it's a police officer. They're like, oh my goodness. You know, flush the crack down the toilet. You know, I gotta burn the evidence. I gotta, you know, put, put the evidence in the toilet and flush it. And you answer the door, hello, officer. You know, you're all like, you know, do your hair, comb your hair really quick. A little spit job, you know, you just wipe it on your hair, make it look nice, presentable. Open the door, hello, officer. Beautiful day today. You know? Or you tell maybe you're housing a convict in your house. Hey, don't say a word. They can't come in the house without a warrant. 
You know, hello, officer. How you doing? You got your little spit job on your hair. Make it look nice and neat. Officer says, we're looking for Joe Schmuckatelli. You heard of him? You know of him? No, no. Never heard of him. Meanwhile, he's hiding in a closet. Well, that's not a clear, clear conscience before men. You know what that means? That's dishonor unto the Lord. Whoa, don't forget, Romans has already been written. That's hardcore stuff. What about the IRS? What if the IRS knocks on the door, you know? Two guys in suits. Like, whoa, this is, I mean, it's kind of intimidating. And they show you their ID, you know, we're with the IRS, you look at their ID, whoa. You know, we're giving you this letter and, and next week, contact us, but, you know, come into our office and we want you to bring the last 10 years of taxes, the last five years of all your taxes. It's like a little summons, a little investigation. It's an audit. Bring the last five years of all your taxes. You know how many people would be sweating bullets? Oh, an IRS audit. Oh, my goodness. I lied about this. I cheated on this. I cheated on that. And. I said I did this and said I did that. And oh my goodness, now I got to account for all these things. You know how many people sweat bullets over a tax, an IRS audit? The world is the world. For now, I'm not concerned about the world. I'm talking about inside the church. But what happens when you've been conducting yourself fairly in your taxes, reporting your income, reporting your profit, recording your law, reporting your losses, all legally, everything's by the book. They say, you know, we want to look at your last five years. Okay, no big deal. Here it is. Clear conscience. You're not sweating bullets. What about a spouse? A spouse who says, hey, give me the password to your social media. I've seen arguments between a husband and wife before. Because one or the other and or the other don't want to give up their social media pass, uh, passwords. Big arguments. What's really going on? That's no clear conscience. That's a conscience that's not void of offense. It's an offensive conscience. That's a conscience that has fault. Or about a boss. A boss is looking at the you know income ratios and says, "Hey, you know what? I've seen an accounting of you know we're short five thousand dollars." And you look at the history. The boss says, "Ah, we were short seven thousand dollars last month." And like month after month after month, wow, you know things aren't reported right. The boss calls calls you in. Hey, what's up with the books? Comes to find out you've been embezzling. No clean conscience. That's just, I'm just talking about when you're caught, when you're confronted with the cop, when you're confronted with the IRS, when you're confronted with the spouse, when you're confronted with the boss. What about your peers? You know, you got to act all cool, but really you're a dork. You know, you conceal something because you want to be cool, you want to fit in, but in real life you're, you know, I don't mean dork like that, <laughs> but in real, you know, you try to, you, you play a part. You're trying to act the part. Like, you, you know, you're part of the in crowd. You're part of the it crowd. That's not a clear conscience. Don't forget, you know, 
having a clear conscience before the Lord, it's beautiful. But I love how the Lord raises the ante. What about before men? We're living in a culture right now. I live in America, Western, Western United States. And we're living in a culture right now where there's a lot of, you know, everybody's like, you know, hardcore constitutionalists. And I, you know, I'm a constitutionalist. I love the constitution. But above the constitution, I love my Bible. You know, straight up the Bible. And what does the Bible teach me? What does the Bible teach you? What does the Bible teach us as a congregation, as a body of Christ, as the bride? Just like Brother Paul, where he says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And a lot of people are like, oh, I have my rights. I'm going to do this. I have my rights. I'm going to do this. Well, you know what? What does it look like when we strive to live peaceably before men? And being without offense towards men. Towards God, that's a gimme. Towards men, it should be a gimme. But what about when a spouse says, oh, give me, let me see your social media, your passcodes. IRS comes. We're going to do an audit. Give me five years of your taxes. What about a cop? You know, we're looking for Joe Schmuckatelli. You, you heard of him? But what does it look like when you have a clear conscience before men? You might get a speeding ticket, for example. Number one, you should be driving the speed limit. But you get a speed speeding ticket, you know, I'm not excusing it, but I've gotten speeding tickets before. Well, you pay your fine. Pay the ticket. How many Christians have like all these ticket parking violations, speeding violations? Christians. Who cannot have a clear conscience before men because of their conduct in the world. Christians who cheat on their taxes. Pastors who cheat on their taxes. Pastors who use uh, clergy tax laws. Tax rules for clergy. Taking people's tithes and offerings. Look how the Lord has provided. And it's all a big tax scam to beef up their bank accounts. And the Lord is witness. The Lord sees everything. How can such a pastor have a clear conscience before the Lord? Impossible. It's disobedience. You know, the world is getting darker and darker and darker and darker. You don't need me to tell you these things. We see it. You say, wow, Lord, I... Just me being a Christian, Lord, it's offensive to these people. Well, now you're suffering shame for the name of Jesus Christ. And Brother Paul says, in that rejoice when you suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. People say, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not being persecuted. You're kind of a jerk. That's not persecution. Heck, if you did that to me, I would persecute you. You're suffering this because you made these choices. You said that. You did this. And now you're suffering. You're reaping what you have sown because you were a jerk. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have punched that guy. You shouldn't have behaved that way. You're suffering shame on your name. You're suffering shame because of you and your choices. 
What about when you suffer shame because you stand for Jesus Christ? Brother Peter, just that we see with Brother Paul, we rejoice. It's beautiful when you're counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Not because of you, but because of Christ and Christ in you. You have a clear conscience before God, a clear conscience before man, a clear conscience before cops, before you know uh, the IRS, before your spouse, before your boss, before your peers. You have a clear conscience before all these people. Praise be to the Lord. Not only do you have a clear conscience, you have a good witness. It is honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Oh, but I have my rights, you know, my First Amendment rights allow me to do this. My whatever rights allow me to do this. And in this law, you know, per this law, you know, law number 123 ABC, people always cite all these laws. Pursuant to, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, wow, how do you know that? People know laws so they can skirt the laws. What about the law of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? A clear conscience without offense. Faultless toward God and men. And Brother Paul says, I strive to have a conscience like this. I train myself to have a conscience like this. What does that tell me as a Christian? What does that tell you as a Christian? Hey, since we have Paul as a pattern, when he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ or follow me as I follow Christ, you know what? I'm going to do that in my life. And I want you to do that in your life too. We can all come together as a congregation be like, wow, let's be like this. There's all, I'm in jail. I'm persecuted. Why are you in jail? Oh, they found cocaine in my trunk. Well, you're in jail on your way to prison. You're going to talk to a judge you're on your way to prison. Why? Because you're trafficking. You got narcotics in the trunk. You get a phone call. Oh, I'm in jail. I'm in, I'm in prison. What happened? You know, I was preaching the good news. I was telling people about Jesus Christ. They beat me up and the cops arrested me. Wow, praise the Lord, you know. You're suffering shame. That's persecution. You see, it's so beautiful when we see these things and we look like, wow. You see, Paul, you see, and he, when he exhorts, you see, Paul's conduct. And then you read his letters to the church in Rome, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Galatia, Ephesians, uh, Philippi, to the church, Colossian church. Thessalonians, like, wow, he's not a hypocrite. He's giving the churches all these exhortations. He's telling these young pastors their exhortations, instructions on what to do, instructions on righteousness. And he himself is empty of self, full of the Holy Spirit. He has a strong witness, a good witness, a good conscience before God, a good conscience before man full of the Holy Spirit and all without hypocrisy. He's not a hypocrite. He's not committing XYZ sin and then telling other people, hey, don't do this. It's a hardcore message for pastors. A hardcore message for elders. And we're going to talk about that hardcore when we get into the book of Acts. Don't be a hypocrite. 
You know how many people say, I want nothing to do with Christianity because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. You know what? I agree with them. You're right. But Christians don't follow men. Don't come to conclusions about Jesus Christ based on this guy or this gal or this pastor or that elder. Don't base your conclusions on Jesus Christ based on these people. You follow Jesus Christ. Huge danger with hypocrisy in the church today. Pastors who themselves are sex addicts. Elders who themselves are dealing drugs. Doing drugs and dealing drugs. Pastors who are alcoholics. All kinds of sin. And then they teach God's people. And they say, you live like this, you live like this, you live like this. When they themselves are whitewashed tombs. The religious establishment, just like in Matthew 23. Woe to you, pastor. Woe to you, elder. Repent. We're all in the same boat. All of us, we're all in the same boat. So let's continue. Beautiful brother Paul. How he always strives. He straight up says in verse 16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. God and man. In verse 17, Now after many years, I came to bring alms and offering, offerings to my nation. Remember, he's giving his testimony. He's, he, no lawyers. No lawyers at all. It's just him. And he's giving his testimony before Governor Felix. He said, after many years. So all these times since, since uh, 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 the Damascus Road, what happened to him on the Damascus Road? And then, you know, you see all these passages, how he's traveling from town to town and get, uh, witnessing and sharing the good news, bringing people to Christ. The whole time he hasn't been to Jerusalem. Now he gets to Jerusalem and he's saying, after many years, I came to bring alms and offering to my nation. So he's uh, Paul of Tarsus. In the region of Cilicia, he's Roman, he's Jewish, and he's a Christian. Look at what he's suffering because of his identity in Christ. People always say, oh, you know what, you know, you know I, I, I feel this way because of this. I feel this way because of that. Well, let me ask you something, if that's you. If you feel sad, if you feel sorrowful, if you feel depressed, if you feel anxious, if you feel whatever, angry, let me ask you a question. What is your identity in Christ? You think about that. What is your identity in Christ? And when Christ is in you, remember like beautiful, beautiful uh, Samuel? When the people, Israel, they wanted a king there. We want to be like this group of people. We want to be like this nation. Give us a king, Samuel. And Samuel's like, no, you guys, we have the Lord. He is our king. We have the Lord. No, Samuel, we want a king. And then the Lord, you know, a little tap to Samuel's shoulder. Samuel, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. You see Samuel, you know, his countenance, he's still, even though this was happening, you still see him still on fire for the Lord. Why? Because what was his identity in Christ? Not just Samuel. Look at all these beautiful cloud of witnesses that we have before us in Holy Scripture. 
Look at all the things that are happening to them. Daniel in the lion's den. You expect, you know, you put a guy in the lion's den, what do you expect to hear? Maybe some screams? Not lasting very long as they tear him apart. But what happened with Daniel? You know? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Your identity in Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ says, Abide in me, no period. Abide in me, and I in you. Comfort. Comfort, restoration, peace. Fill in the blank. I am who I am. In your heart. In your mind. In the very essence of your body. Your temple. Not even your temple. Scratch that. God's temple. The Shekinah glory. And so look at verse 18. In the midst of which some Jews from Asia. He's speaking about his experience in the temple. In the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. Neither with the mob nor with tumult. In verse 19, they ought to have been here, you know, now he, like, almost like pointing at, you know, uh, Ananias and the elders and, and, and Tertullus. They ought to have been here before you to eject, to object if they had anything against me. But instead, what do you have? You have this group of people. Or else let those who are here themselves, you know, speaking of this group of Jews, Ananias, the high priest, the elders, Tertullus. Let them, let them say. The real witnesses, Governor Felix, they're not even here. They're not even present, Governor Felix. Number, verse 1, supposedly they had evidence. Supposedly they were bringing evidence to convict Paul. But they had none. It was all a ruse, a hoax. Or else let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. That was what he said. That was his statement. And that's what Paul is saying. That's the offense which I made. Except, you know, if that was an offense... Paul could certainly back it up. Remember, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He could back it up and support it scripturally, doctrinally, in accordance with the law. He could back it up. Look what happens in verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he kind of announced recess. Recess. I'm going to call, recall the case with a decision. That's what he's saying here. Verse 23. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for to provide for or visit him. Wow. That's pretty nice incarceration. I mean, if you've ever been incarcerated before. It's not exactly, you know. The best experience, you know, you have a small cell, iron bars, a lot of concrete, a little nasty toilet in the corner. But you see what happens here in verse 23? Tells the centurion, take Paul, keep him, tend, you know, not tend him, but like, you know, uh, house him, 
Except this, let him have liberty. And, and don't forbid his friends to provide for him or visit him. Whoa, that's a pretty, pretty cush incarceration. He has liberty. He can have visitors. They can bring supplies to him. You know, maybe some snacks. But even more so, like when Paul writes to you know, young Pastor Timothy, he says, bring me the parchments. Bring me the parchments. You know why? He was writing letters. Writing letters to churches, to pastors, to home fellowships, Philemon. Writing letters. Then you start to see a little picture emerge. You know, you see a picture of God's favor, but also the blessings of having a clear conscience before men. Like, you know, when we looked at in verse 16, when Paul says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. But imagine if Paul was a jerk before Felix. Not to suggest that he would, but imagine if he was, just for a second. You know, judges can be jerks too. Have you ever seen judges when they give make their determinations? Say, well, you know, I was going to give you five months, but because of your outburst in the courtroom, I'm going to give you a year. Or, you know, I was just going to, you know, make the sentence as time served. Because in your period of incarceration, I'm going to consider, consider that time served. But because of, you know, your outburst here in the courtroom and the police guards, they tell me that, you know, your behavior, what it's like in the jail cell, you're always getting into fights, you're always beating up people and doing all these things. You're not following the rules. I'm going to make it two years. I was going to give you time served where, you know, as soon as we're done here, you're free to go. But I'm not going to do that now because of your behavior. Now you got to spend two years in jail. Or now you got to spend, you know, you, you were in the jail system, and now we're going to transfer you to the prison system. Remember, judges are in this role specifically for that purpose. To make judgment. Make determinations. And you want to be a jerk? Judges can be jerks too. I mean, have you ever been pulled over by a cop? You want to be a jerk to a cop? They'll thump you on the head. But you know, the cop says, do this. Okay, just do it. Judges can be jerks too. Cops can be jerks too. Bosses can be jerks too. Look at bosses. You know, you want to be a jerk to your boss? Embezzle? And I'm not suggesting you do that, but I'm, I'm not, you know, by saying, I'm just posing a question. That's it. Embezzle money from the, the boss? Lie about this? Lie about that? You know? Yeah, pad your wallet, you know, an extra, you know, 500 bucks a week. And the boss is going to find out. Look, if you were up front, you know, I would have been more lenient, but this, is, this isn't a misdemeanor anymore. This is a straight up felony. I'm pressing charges against you. So it goes both ways. Then you start to understand, you know, having a clear conscience before God and men. I mean, I know some hardcore, hardcore atheists. Hardcore atheists. But we get along. <laughs> we get along. I get along with them. People who are like hardcore Hindu. We get along. I pray for them. They know I'm a Christian. But we get along. 
Why? Because I strive to live peaceably. Yes, before God, that's a gimme. But you know what also a gimme is? Before men. You ask me about truth, I'll give you truth. You ask me about this, I'll tell you this. Catholics, they know where I stand. Catholics get mad at me sometimes, you know. You know, oh, by the way, Catholicism, that's not Christianity. Whoa, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean? Okay, this is this is what the Bible says. This is what the Vatican Council says. You choose. Well, we'll just agree to disagree. Okay, that's fine. But you know where I stand. I'm not going to be a jerk about it, but you know, you know where I stand. And it's so beautiful because you start to see like, wow, you know, yes, there's God's favor. But then at the same time, you start to see the blessings of God's instructions when we strive to have a clear conscience before God and men. Like there's certain mayors, certain senators, certain governors, certain presidents. Morally, I do not respect but I respect their office. If I was going to go and, you know, talk with a mayor that I don't agree with politically, I'm not going to disrespect him or his office. If I speak to a senator that I disagree with politically, I'm not going to disrespect her or her office. I do have respect for the office. But then at the same time, I'm going to strive to live peaceably with him, with her, with because... That's what we're called to do. Don't forget, when you hear me mention before, the book of Romans has already been written. That's some hardcore stuff considering what the church was about ready to enter. It's a major persecution. Persecution from the Jews, but persecution is coming from Rome. And Paul says, strive to live peaceably with men. To have a clear conscience before God and man. That's hardcore when you put it in this perspective of, you know, we're 2,000 years, give or take a couple years, you know, separated from these events. But if we were in this, if we were the church in Ephesus, and we got a letter from Paul, if we were the church in Rome, and we got a letter from Paul, and Paul says, whoa, he wants us to submit to government? What? And then he starts to write, oh, okay. And then you get a visiting, you know, a guy from Ephesus. Yeah, we also got a letter from Paul. He wrote this. Well, let me see that. You read it. Oh, I get it now. I have to die to myself. I have to put myself aside. I have to reckon the old man dead. I have to reckon the old woman dead. I have to be a new creation in Jesus Christ. And a slave is not greater than his master. A slave is not greater than her master. Wow, Lord. I need your spirit in my life. Complete and total reliance on the Holy Spirit. Complete and total reliance on the Lord. And he gives it to us through the Holy Spirit. Comfort. And so let's continue. In verse 24, in closing, and after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. So, you know, who, who, who was Jewish? So Felix, Roman governor, and he is married to a Jewish wife. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. This is crazy. In a good way. I don't mean crazy in a bad way, but crazy. 
imagine if Paul was a jerk before Felix at the onset, right? When, you know, when Tertullus, when, when Tertullus, the orator, was done with his dissertation, you know, his hoax. And then when Paul, like in verse 10, when Paul, after the governor nodded to him to speak, what if he just immediately was a jerk? This is an injustice, Governor Felix. I'm a, a Roman citizen. This is wrong. And just started complaining and arguing and murmuring. Rather than just accepting where he's at. And in it, honoring the Lord. Look at the doorways it opened for Brother Paul. He's incarcerated. And yet he has liberty. He's incarcerated. And he can have his friends visit. He can, he's incarcerated. And he can have his friends bring stuff for him. Snacks. I don't know. Parchment. I happen to think parchment was you know, a big ticket item for, for Paul. As it was when he wrote to Timothy. To write so he could write letters. And not only that, look at the doorways that his witness, his obedience to Jesus Christ and his witness before living peaceably and without offense toward God and men. But he's, he's doing it before God. But let's look at the man part before Governor Felix. This clear cut without offense towards Governor Felix. When Paul could have like said, you know, look, I'm Roman. This is an injustice. This is wrong. I have my rights. You shouldn't be doing this. These guys are making false accusations. So this is all wrong. This is all an injustice. Think of what Governor Felix could have done. But no, because of the favor of the Lord, his obedience, Paul's obedience to the Lord. Look at all these doors that are opening. Now he's inquiring about Christianity. His wife, Drusilla, who's a Jew herself, just like Brother Paul. And then he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Paul's prior behavior and his prior countenance and conduct in obedience to the Lord has paved the way for these future conversations about Jesus Christ. The same way your conduct can do for you. The same way your behavior can do for you. The same way you having a clear conscience before men can open doors for you. In honoring the Lord. You see? But what if you're a jerk? Or, oh, I'm an American citizen. I have my rights. I can do this. I can do that. I can do that. Who's going to want to hear you when you're a jerk? You see God's favor. And so now, in, in, in closing, in verse 25, Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. There's something about Christianity which is kind of freaky. You know, it's, it's beautiful. It's good. I love it. But I remember when I first heard it, I was freaked out. Like, what? I remember one of the guys I listened to, he was like, you know, the world's going to end. I was like, what? I mean the world's gonna end oh yeah there's prophecy about this what and then you know he was the one that i sought after when i was going through some problems and he let me read his bible and there's something freaky about christianity i don't, I don't mean that in a bad sense i mean it like you know when somebody tells you about judgment that's coming it's like you know we live in a culture today where you know people don't like judgment they don't like to think about oh condemnation god's wrath they don't like to think about it well there's nothing new 
The same with Governor Felix. Felix was afraid. Paul told him, verse 25, he reasoned about righteousness. You know, Christians today, they say, oh yeah, don't talk, don't talk about, you know, you go to like uh, 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 how to evangelize. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about the book of Revelation. Don't talk about last day's prophecies. That's what they say. That's what they teach. And so you have these, you know, they, they, they go and share the faith of Jesus Christ, but they don't talk about judgment. That is coming. I mean, imagine Noah before the rains. You know, here he is constructing a boat. No water, just on dry ground constructing a boat. Passers by, Noah. Noah, what are you doing? The ocean's like miles that way. Why are you doing this? Why are you building a boat? Oh, you know, I just want to feel good about myself. God loves you. God loves you. What are you talking about, Noah? But what if Noah was like, you know what? A flood is coming. The Lord, the Lord, maybe not the flood is coming, but you know, the Lord gave this and put this on my heart and told me to do this. So here I am doing it. But judgment is coming. What do you mean judgment is coming? I don't know what form it's going to come. You know, it probably has to do with water because the Lord told me to build this boat. So here I am building this boat and God loves you. Remember, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I wonder how freaked out those guys got. Maybe they thought Noah was crazy. But nobody thought he was crazy anymore when the rains came. When the puddles went from their ankles to their knees. From their knees to their waist. From their waist to their chest. Finally, they had to swim to stay afloat. It's easy to stay afloat for an hour, you know, maybe 30, 20 minutes. What if you have to stay afloat for a day, for two days, for three days, a week? It's not fun and games anymore. That's the church today, Christians today. This is a hey, get in the boat. Judgment is coming. Get in the ark. Say, oh no, you don't, don't talk about judgment. As evangelists, you know, you go to school of evangelism. Don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about the book of Revelation. Well, we're living in a generation today where you can't deny these things. Prophecy is coming to pass. Look at peace that's spreading in the Middle East. It's not the beginning of the final seven years. It's not the beginning of the 70th week. But we're potentially right at the cusp. They already have qualified red heifers. Just a new fresh inspection happened like three weeks ago. At an undisclosed location, Euphrates River drying up. All preparation for Revelation 16. These things are happening. We're living in the days of Elijah. What does that tell you? What does that tell me? Be an Elijah. In the days of Elijah, be an Elijah. In the days of Noah, be a Noah. Who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Governor Felix, he was freaked out. And Paul, I don't mind you talking to me about righteousness. You can even talk to me about self-control. But judgment to come? Whoa. Governor Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. You know, the world, when you talk about judgment, the world will say, go away for now. Christians will even tell you, don't talk about judgment. Talk about judgment. You know, 
People say, oh yeah, just let people, you know, love people to Christ. You know, some people are come to Jesus Christ because of love. But for me, I came to Jesus Christ because I was freaked out. I was scared straight up. And praise be to the Lord because he got my attention. You read the Bible, I started reading, you know, I was drunk too when I first read the Bible. I was scared. I started reading the book. My friend thought, I said, where do I start? He gave me his Bible. He said, read the book of Matthew. And I was drunk out of my mind. And the Lord sobered me the whole time. Finished the book of Matthew overnight. I didn't sleep that night. And I read the book of Matthew. When I was done, I was crying. Like, Lord, nobody told me. Nobody. And I was a cat, former Catholic. The Lord rescued me from Catholicism. Nobody told me, Lord. I didn't know about your judgment. I didn't know that you're coming again. I had no idea. And I was freaked out. <laughs> Praise be to the Lord. And so look what happens here. Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have come, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So Felix had uh, some, uh, uh, some motives. He had his own motives. Paul is Roman. He's a Roman citizen. Maybe he's rich. Because not anybody can be a Roman citizen. It was kind of for aristocracy. The wealthy class. The learned class, upper class society, high society. Maybe Paul's got some money he's not telling me about. So verse 26. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Kind of paints a little picture about Felix. Maybe he accepted bribes. I wonder what Paul's witness was for Felix. When righteousness comes against unrighteousness. What is your witness like? It's... If it's salt, it's attracting. But you know what? If it's light, and these are good. Salt and light is good. But if it's light, it's detracting to darkness. Darkness doesn't like the light. I wonder if that if Felix had a little bit of that going on. You know, while he's married to a Jewish wife. I don't know what if his wife came to the faith. I don't know. But you see these passages and it's like, whoa. Felix was wanting, you know, he's wanting Paul to ask him for money that he might release him, he says in verse 26. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. You know, so Felix was using freedom as leverage against Paul. You know, Paul, you want your freedom? You know, give me some money, slide me some cash. That's Governor Felix, the governor. Paul, you want your freedom, right? You know what's funny? <laughs> Unbeknownst to Governor Felix, don't forget that in chapter 21, verse 13, Paul says, For I am not ready only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, Paul was a different animal. So, you know, I, I don't... Governor Felix was waiting a long time. And when is this guy going to offer me, you know, offer me some money? Never happened. Never happened. Look what happened in verse 27 in closing. But after two years, <laughs> after two years... Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. So we got a new governor in town. Felix's term is over or maybe Felix retired. Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, maybe they paid Governor Felix, I don't know. He left Paul bound. Left Paul bound. Historically speaking, in chronological order, you know what happened from this moment here and coming into verse 1 of chapter 25, where we're going to be next week, Lord willing. 
Paul is killed about two years from this moment. About two years from here and the beginning of verse 1, Paul has his head chopped off. For the name of Jesus Christ. For a beautiful man. But you know what? He is the one who says to live is Christ, to die is gain. So beautiful, this soul. And I can't wait to meet him. I can't wait to hug him. And you know what's so cool? If you're a non-believer and you're listening to these messages, you know, God loves you. He wants to have oneness with you. He wants to have unity with you. And you repent. You believe in Jesus Christ, you repent. You say, Lord, forgive me. You forgive me, Lord. Listen to, you know, when we're done with this message, you listen to our message about receiving Jesus Christ and say the sinner's prayer. And enter the family of God. We're going to end our study here. And God bless you guys. Love you guys.